Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. But as he stood watching Carthage burn, Scipio reflected on the fate of this once great power. Overcome with emotion, he cried. His friend and mentor, Polybius, approached and asked why Scipio was crying. A glorious moment, Polybius, but I have a dread foreboding that someday the same doom will be pronounced on my own country. Scipio then quoted a line from Homer. A day will come when sacred Troy shall perish and Priam and his people shall be slain. Scipio knew that no power endures indefinitely, that all empires must fall. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. We uh, apologize for being a little late on this episode. We've both been busy, but. We're excited to get back to offering everyone new and interesting content because there's clearly a lot going on right now. Now, let's see. How how do do I intro this? Eric, you kind of took the first stab at these show show notes, and the the working title is Most Maiorum. What does that mean? How does it apply to what's going on now? Yeah, those of you who already know what Most Maiorum means know that you're in for a treat. Those who don't, Most Maiorum literally means the way of the ancestors. In ancient Rome, it really meant the, the rules of the game. And the game in ancient Rome, of course, was political power. So we're going to be talking about ancient Rome at length, uh, in particular, the Roman Republic. The United States has a thousand, thousand times been compared to Rome, often like a teetering and decadent empire at the end of its lifetime, ready to be taken out by some pissed off and, awesome, and also frightened for their lives goths. But this is a poor and lazy comparison. Comparing to the United States with the end of the Roman Empire does not make sense. But with the late Roman Republic, such a comparison gets a little bit apt and a little more on the ball than we're entirely comfortable with. So what's the difference between the Roman Empire and the Roman Republic? Well, the end of the Roman Empire happened in the 5th century AD. and in some ways, was the end of Rome itself, at least in the West, whereas the fall of the Republic happened in the first century BC. And this is when essentially Rome became a lot more autocratic after a series of really bloody civil wars. So 
the fall of the Republic is when Julius Caesar came to power and the triumvirate with Crassus and Pompey. And if you're, you know, if you're a fan of podcasts generally, you're probably a fan of the history of Rome and you're probably somewhat familiar with this story. But we just feel that it's a little too close for comfort right now. And we want to try to think about like one level higher maybe than, than some of the, the commentaries generally going on. How can we step back from uh, what Eric and I both consider to be a kind of a dangerous precipice? And we're not trying to like sensationalize it, but we're trying to be honest about this cycle that we're going to get into that we think is beginning to drive affairs in America. Yeah, those who know anything about the end of the Roman Republic know the word Rubicon. And maybe those who don't know the history so well know the word Rubicon. It's a river, but, it's, but today it is a symbol for having crossed a line that you cannot uncross, for having started something that you cannot stop. Caesar, when he crossed the Rubicon, said, the die is cast. It is a lot like starting uh, dominoes falling over. Once you start it, there's nothing you can do to stop it. And so the question for any society that is starting to divide that is at risk of unraveling is what is our Rubicon? What is our point of no return, our event horizon, right? There's a reason we have so many of these analogies for this idea of a, of a point of no return because we want to avoid it, right? Historians and wise folks throughout the centuries have tried to teach us how to avoid it. The Roman Republic failed to avoid it. Caesar did cross the Rubicon. And we're going to be using that history of the late Roman Republic, leaning very heavily on Mike Duncan's The Storm Before the Storm, which if you haven't read it, you need to. It's amazing. But uh, it's going to help you with this episode. It's helped us with this episode. We're going to be talking about some of the slightly frightening parallels, but also some of what's different about the United States today and the Roman Republic. But most importantly, we're going to be talking about this concept called Most Maiorum which was the code name for this episode as we started. Duncan's thesis is that the Roman Republic fell in large part due to a breakdown of Mos Maiorum, a breakdown in the rules of the game. Previously, Mos Maiorum had held in check ambitious politicians. They had to play by the rules of the game to get in power. And over time, people started breaking those rules and then breaking them more and then breaking them more. And at some point, most my arm had degraded to such a point that raw power was the only thing that mattered. Pompey the Great was famously quoted as saying, do not quote laws to us who carry swords. And at that point, it was too late, long before the Rubicon. So what does this have to do with where we are today in late December 2020? Uh, Trump has been devoted to overturning the election, and so far his efforts have failed. The, his attempts at litigation have basically all been complete failures because they haven't present, presented any evidence. The Electoral College voted without a hitch, and even now Mitch McConnell congratulated Biden on his victory and told Republican senators to kind of keep a lid on it and not challenge the results on January 6th. And of course, we're a nation of laws, right? We don't just depend on these informal agreements. Uh, in order to manage our system of government. And actually, this is one of the differences that we're going to be talking about a little bit, that the U.S. had a constitution, a written constitution, in a way that the Roman Republic didn't quite. And part of the reason that the, the founding fathers wanted a written constitution was because they reflected upon the fall of the Roman Republic and came to you know some of these conclusions. 
Now, um, I believe, Eric, that your point, we kind of had a back and forth on this in, in the Google Docs that we uh, put the show notes together in, that yes, there are written laws, but even following those laws and enforcing, enforcing those laws is a matter of custom and norms, right? Yes. One belief I have that I think is backed up by a lot of history and by a lot of, a lot of thinkers is that ultimately, look, society is only going to, I mean, in, in a general case, society is only going to hold together if this massive uh, critical mass of people, both people in power and just people without power, everyone, wants to get along, right? People need to keep buying in. You can't actually set up a system that in that through force alone keeps people in check, except unless maybe you build some Soviet style, you know, nightmare state. Right. But for both society as a whole and for our political system, in order for it to keep functioning and in particular functioning harmoniously, people need to buy into that system. That system has to have legitimacy and people need to say to themselves, okay, there are limits to what I'm willing to do. There are limits to how I'm going to try to exploit the system to get power and get what I want. We're actually going to go through a lot of those examples of where people have voluntarily chosen to limit what they do in order to get power. And it's been very important for our history. One of the things about laws, and we have them much more than the, the Romans did, is that they have to be enforced by people, right? And so if someone, even the Constitution, which we have that the Romans didn't, if someone breaks the Constitution, well, it's going to take this whole process of getting it to the Supreme Court and then the Supreme Court arguing over what even what that piece of paper even means, right, for it to be enforced. And if that's happening all the time, if the only way that the Constitution is being followed is that is that, you know, you have everyone in power trying to do everything they can to exploit it and persist their power. And the only way to hold them in check is that Supreme Court. It's not going to work. It's going to fall apart. And uh, the fact that laws have to be enforced, they're not automatically enforced, means that there's a limitation of how much these laws can what? directly, as opposed to implicitly, control our behavior. Laws are important. But for them to work, most people, most of the time, need to want to follow the law because they want to, as opposed to just because of the negative consequences of not following. Yeah. And I think, you know, people in positions of power in all periods will try to, I think, exploit loopholes in either governing traditions or norms to accomplish things. It's, but it's a matter of degree mm -hmm. and um, frequency. And uh, severity, and that's that's really a, a big part of what this episode is about. We're talking about most maiorum from old Rome, uh, because we are witnessing a, a somewhat similar tit for tat escalation in these political tactics that violate norms um, by by trying to find these niche exception cases to the point where you know you're kind of just playing political games with one another, and it gets to a point where you know, force can potentially be involved. And that's what we want to avoid. Um, now, let's see how it turns out. So back to Rome. The story really began with 
the the Grokai brothers, and it was Tiberius Grokai and Gaius Grokai. Uh, Tiberius came first. And the situation was this. The Gracchi brother were frustrated at this law called the Lex Agraria. It was a very important law, and it was being completely ignored by the Roman Senate. Um, so the Gracchi brothers use an old law to bypass the Senate entirely uh, because Tiberius at that point believed that it was an important enough law that it was worth the political loophole in order to accomplish, I mean, and justify the means, right? Right. And this was one of these. So we'll talk about crises more in the future, structural crises, economic crises, um, stuff like inequality and how how different historians or scholars have have seen or believed that structural issues raise the stakes enough that people start to say, oh, yeah, the ends definitely justify the means here. What was going on in Rome at the time was the Second Punic War had just ended. Carthage had indeed been defeated, as we heard at the beginning of this episode. And but the problem and so everything seemed great, but there were a lot of problems that came out of this. One of them was that previously Roman uh, and, and for those of you who know the history you know, sorry, but stick with us for 90 seconds. Right. But um, Roman farmers were the basis of the army. In fact, you had to be a landowner to even be in the army. And the way they traditionally fought was they'd go on campaign um, after planting the crops and before sowing them. And then they'd come back to sow the crops. The Second Punic War stretched out and these men were on campaign for years. And what it meant was their farms withered. And they couldn't sell food. Uh, So they ran out of money and they had to sell their farms. And so all of a sudden you had all these farmers that lost their farms and they couldn't get jobs because the fall of Carthage meant all these slaves showed up and there were literally free labor. And so you had suddenly, quite suddenly, this massive unemployment, massive um, displacement of the backbone, you know, the really like kind of the middle class, right? The backbone of Roman society. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and poverty for these people. And you had a bunch of people that got rich by buying these farms and putting slaves on them. Um, mm-hmm. so there was a lot of tension. There were other tensions as well. I mean, there were the, the, uh, there's the Italian citizenship question and all sorts of stuff, but the Lex Agraria is meant to try to fix that by taking public land and giving it back to these farmer soldiers, reestablishing this middle class. Whether it was the right thing to do or not kind of doesn't matter right now. We know the stakes were high. We know there was a crisis. Uh, The Senate didn't want to do it. And Tiberius Gracchus used this old law that hadn't been pulled out for a long time. Uh, It was called the Lex Lex Hortensia of 287 BC. So we're talking about something that's over 150 years old, in which he used the assembly of the plebs to bypass the Senate. But and so, okay, we've broken a norm by busting out this old law, skipping over the Senate. Right when normally the plebs in the Senate are working together, um, and so we for the broke- sake of analogy, the assembly of the plebs and is kind of like Congress, uh, the House versus the yeah, Senate, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so the assembly of the plebs uh, tries to just d- ditch around the Senate rather than working with them. But then another tribunate, Marcus Octavius, not the Octavius that we know and love, Augustus Caesar, um, much earlier, but Marcus Octavius, who was. Uh, allied with the Senate, used his veto to scuttle the plan. And so he reached this standstill. So 
Um, by the way, before we keep going in the story, does mm. does a recent example, <laughs> recent pass, uh, come to mind when you think about using very old laws to justify contemporary actions? Perhaps Remember, something over two hundred years old. Yeah, that whole insurre- insurrection act thing that came up earlier this year. It was a, it was a, it was passed in eighteen oh seven, and it was being used to justify modern actions. You won't even talk about whether you know it was a moral or immoral justification. The fact is, it's quite old. And the circumstances that brought it into existence are quite different. Right. Um, Bortak! Uh, Bortak going into, uh, going into <laughs> Portland to deal with violent anarchists. This is a prior podcast if you, about the Portland protests. If, if you haven't listened to it, go check out Bortak! Uh, <laughs> and, and then you'll be in on that joke, too. Back to Rome. So, uh, this, this political infighting about this old bill and the Lex Agraria and essentially land reform and income inequality started a very long cycle of escalation between two groups. They were called the Optimates, and the second group is called the Populares. And you can imagine the, the Optimates are kind of like the upper class and the Populares are you know the middle class. But uh, wealth stratification was different in Rome than it is today. But that's a good enough analogy. And they began going at each other to prevent the other side from taking too much power and thereby completely dominating Roman politics. Let's see. Why don't you give us the rundown here, Eric? Sure. Uh, I, I'm stealing straight from Wikipedia. God bless you, Wikipedia. When they come for money, please give it to them. But um, uh, So I'm going to read kind of directly from them, but they do a good job summarizing stuff that, that if you've read Storm Before the Storm, you've learned. So... Tiberius Gracchus pushed the assembly to impeach and remove Octavius, uh, the guy who had vetoed his bill. And in order to get rid of the guy vetoing him, you know, his bill and then be able to push it through. Right. So so this was the assembly of the plebs. Uh, Gracchus asked Octavius to be impeached and gotten rid of the Lex Agraria actually passed. But then the Senate denied funds to the commission that was needed for the land reform of the Lex Agraria. And then Tiberius Gracchus used the money out of a trust fund left by the by a king of Pergamum who had left his his kingdom to Rome. Um, and so, like, he, he you know, kind of used a a technical loophole to try to fund the land reform project. But then the Senate blocked that. And at one point, uh, Gracchus had, quote, one of his freedmen drag Octavius from the speaker's platform as Octavius is trying to oppose him. And uh, because, this, again, the, this back and forth had gotten really, really intense. Now, that assault of Octavius violated a law called the Lex Sacrata, um, like sacred, right? Sacrata is a root of sacred, which prohibited people of lower status from violating the person of a person of higher class. So he broke the law. Um, and so, uh, and what this did was it meant that uh, Gracchus is now in trouble, but in order to keep himself from going to jail, he actually seeks re-election to his one-year term as tribunate of the plebs. Um, uh, because when you're a tribunate or a consul, you're actually, much like being president now, you're pretty immune from being thrown in jail. But Gracchus is about to be thrown in jail for having done this. It, maybe this is, if this is sounding familiar, this is why we're doing this episode. And so he seeks re-election um, but nobody had ever sought re-election to that term before. Most Maiorum said it's a one-year term um, and you don't seek re-election. But there was no law technically stopping him. And so he gets re-elected, uh, but the optimates, these oligarchic nobles, 
freaked out at this and they said, oh my gosh, he's breaking most of my arm. He's becoming too powerful. He's a, uh, he's a demagogue. And so they murdered him. Um, but because he was a demagogue uh, and he was incredibly popular with the poor, many of whom were these former farmer soldiers who had given their, their, you know, given their lives essentially to Rome um, and he was fighting for them. Right. So when he was murdered, working on their behalf, mass riots broke out um, in the city. And the end, uh, you know, if the Rubicon, if, if the if the metaphorical Rubicon had not been crossed at that point. They had reached this level of escalation where violence became a tool of politics, and it's very hard to walk back. And it's worth remembering, too, for additional context, that in Rome, this sort of thing, taking out a demagogue violently, was not brand new because Rome had a history specifically of hating kings because they had this memory from their ancient past and um, they, they exiled the Tarquins, right? And, and Shakespeare's Rape of Lucretia. Um, uh, something, anyways, I, I, I knew some of it at some point. So that's <laughs> useful context. But the scale of violence that was introduced due to political jockey and not like unanimous consent among the people that they were trying to be ruled by an autocrat uh, spiraled out of control. And ultimately, that's how you get to the two major civil wars of the first century BC. And that's, that's, that's essentially what Eric and I desperately want to avoid, right? Because once you start killing people, you, you create this cycle this, that, that of escalation that's so difficult to break because it goes from being about politics to being personal and wanting to seek revenge and all of that. And a lot of it does seem to stem from this breakdown of sort of what's generally, res- generally accepted and respected within the role of government. So if we're thinking about most myorum today, then, what, what are some examples that you would offer, Eric? So, yeah, again, we are a nation of laws. And so there are things that you are legally allowed to do that are within your power, right? That most myorum, the rules of the game, these unspoken norms and customs keep people from abusing. And let's go through a few examples of them. One of them is the presidential or gubernatorial veto, right? Most myorum, the modern most myorum says you should really only use that rarely when it really matters, not constantly just because you didn't get what you want. If someone's vetoing, you know, if a president or a governor is vetoing bills left and right just because they want that bill to be slightly different, we would we would probably say they're they're abusing their power. They're breaking most my arm. Same thing with executive orders, although executive orders are getting a little more popular these days. But executive orders can be used um, to go around Congress because Congress has passed so many laws over the past 250 years that a president can try to exploit to use it to write an executive order and, and do something unilaterally. Doing it too often breaks most my arm. Declaring a state of emergency, using the filibuster, um, using the new- not oh. not just declaring a state of emergency, uh, yes. but but using it to do something that's that's exceptional at the moment given the circumstances. Exactly, exactly. These are all these are all powers. What I'm listing out are powers that people have in government that it's agreed that they should use it rarely and only under certain circumstances. There's no law preventing them from using it more often. Most my arm prevents them from using it more often. So declaring a state of emergency, 
is one of those things. The filibuster is one of those things. Use it rarely. Uh, forcing cloture, right? And we'll talk about that later, what that even means. But, but, or like using the nuclear option to force cloture and force a vote um, is something that you can always do, but we use it rarely. Um, busting out some very old unused law to do what you want now. Court packing is something that legally can be done, and people are talking about doing it right now. And even just certain low or dirty campaign tactics, right? So the whole idea of most myorum here is that these shared rules of the game keep things from escalating too much. And actually, everyone following them is good for everyone. It's a little bit like a uh, tragedy of the commons problem. You actually don't want, nobody wants a situation where all the time everyone is using the full extent of their power to try to do as much or to try to force, you know, enforce their power as much as possible, right? Because it creates this very unstable system and people know it lead to breakdown. And so there's this shared concept of wanting to follow these unspoken rules, these norms, this most myorum. But sometimes, let, such as the Lex Agraria, it can feel like the stakes are so high that just this once, just this once, we're going to break custom and use all of our power that we can in order to get our way. And then the and precedent that- is set, and then the precedent is set, and then your political opponent uses it at the first possible opportunity, but just steps it up a little bit to see how far they can push it, right? So right now, today, we hear a lot about Republicans upending these these old American traditions and using increasingly raw power to do whatever they want. Not all Republicans, but the point we're making in this show is not that the Republicans are doing something unique, but rather this is an example of the sort of escalation that we were just talking about with the Roman Republic. The breakdown of of tradition is essentially what we're talking about here. When people start doing things that are meant to be used in exceptional circumstances regularly in order to get what they want using raw power, well, this this year has just seen further escalations in a cycle that, you know, Reconsider's been talking about since 2014. Back before it was cool, yeah. I'm actually going to bust out another quote from Mike Duncan here, and we're going to get a few of them along the way. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Velius Petercolus later observed, quote, Precedents do not stop where they begin. But however narrow the path upon which they enter, they create for themselves a highway whereon they may wander with the utmost latitude. 
No one thinks a course is based for himself, which has proven profitable to others. So we're going to talk about some of these precedents that have been set over time leading up to 2020 and how the escalation of 2020 is actually, even if ever so slightly, through that narrow path using previous precedent in order to make itself ugly. And we actually want to to start in some of American history by talking about some really old stuff that happened where most of my arms started to break down and people enforced, tried to enforce their will through force. Um, one example that uh, Republicans and libertarians love to bust out is that FDR tried to pack the court, the Supreme Court, because the Supreme Court kept declaring his executive actions unconstitutional, right? And much like the Lex Agraria, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, was saying, look, we're in the middle of a big effing depression, the biggest depression we've ever seen. This is important. It has to get done. I need this to work. Um, And the Supreme Court said, too bad, buddy. It breaks the rules. And so he tried to pack the court. He failed. But it was a way that that FDR challenged norms, right, and used the power of the law or tried to use the power of the law to enforce his will. So it was legal for him to try to pack the court, but it was a breakdown of custom. Now, that's not the worst example we have. There are many examples of this throughout history. The most obvious one is the Civil War itself and everything leading up to that. What's interesting is if we were doing this show in 1850, we might be talking about the decline and fall, you know, the, the coming decline and fall of the American Republic. Now, of course, we didn't have podcasts back in 1850, unfortunately, because I'm sure people would be far more educated after listening to me and Xander. But, but, the, but you know, everyone who's gone through U.S. history knows that the Civil War came about because of this fundamental tension and, and uh, you know, between the, the slave-owning states and the not-slave-owning states over this issue that was in part economic but, but very moral, including for, you know, including for all of the abolitionists in the North and the radical Republicans who had decided that it was just fundamentally un-American to have slaves. The radical Republicans win the election of 1860, it, putting themselves in a position of power uh, to, to, through normal means, not extraordinary at all means, um, exert their will, right? It was the will of the people that had translated up through Congress and the presidency. They were in a good position to, to take action and the South secedes. And this could have happened many, many times over the past 30 years, but people like Clay had, had formed all these compromises to try to hold it all together, right? But, you know, but the South secedes and they say, fine, we're going to use power rather than compromise to get our way and keep slavery going. Um, and so the U.S., is here today, despite this civil war. That civil war did not turn into Caesar crossing the Rubicon. It did not turn into an autocracy by incredible luck and deft maneuvering and you know, skill by the people in charge, namely Lincoln himself. So it's worth noting that this is not the first time that the United States has either a little bit or a lot started to break some of the norms that had meant a somewhat harmonious political system before. But what we do want to talk about is some of the more modern stuff that we've been seeing that kind of starts walking us towards, uh, you know, walking us towards this, this open door for 2020 to go off the rails. And as we walk through these examples, keep in mind that idea of escalation. 2020 
in our minds is a, is a substantial escalation. And the, the, the path is nonlinear. And that means that the, the degrees of escalation grow as, as you move forward. And as we've seen this year in ample evidence, people are not naturally inclined to think in exponential terms. It's just not part of our biology. So I, I think that's, that's worth keeping in mind because some of these examples will seem to some benign by comparison. But they we're trying to trace back how this pattern started because we really want to stop it. So let's talk about the process of uh, delegitimizing elections. And one obvious place to start is in 2000. Recent history, there's a recount thin margin. Uh, the recount was stopped by a split Supreme Court decision, five to four. And uh, later studies showed that kind of depending on what standard you had for all of these, you know, hanging chads and punch card problems, Bush or Gore could have won by hundreds uh, or, or maybe just even dozens of votes. Um, now, the difference between 2000 and 2020, well, for one, the margin uh, was slimmer in 2000, 2020, quite large, landslide and popular vote and electoral college. But uh, an important distinction uh, between the two is how the presidential candidates at the time handle themselves while this, this democratic process played out. So Al Gore at the time emailed his staffers, please make sure that no one trashes the Supreme Court. This was an example of most mayorum at the time prevailing, uh, even though some Democrats groaned and you know, Bush lost the popular vote, uh, and that, that was kind of painful for, for the Democratic Party at the time. And it started to create uh, another sort of momentum, which is this uh, questioning of the Electoral College and what, whether that is a legitimate institution in of itself. Yeah. So there was this, there was this, uh, you know, for those who remember, there was this sense by some that Bush had won on a technicality, right? So the rules, you know, as the rules cascaded and different decisions in different places came down, it handed him the victory, even though, depending again on, uh, what's what's so crazy about 2000 is like, depending on which rules you pull out, even as minute as what rules are used by the Florida Election Commission to decide whether a vote is valid or not, um, and just the the crazy happenstance that um, that the punch card system was such a disaster, right? We we still can't say decisively who should have won that election. We just know who happened to win that election by a series of rules and decisions. Um, and uh, but some, at, you know, some at that time questioned whether Bush should be president, not whether he was president, but whether he should be president and whether the Electoral College should stick around and be used, because if it was a national popular vote, Gore would have won easily. And. We want you to keep this in mind for a little bit later, because 16 years later, it's going to rear its ugly head again. In 2008, Obama won, and he won by a lot. He, uh, it's, it's, I believe, the biggest popular vote percentage victory since uh, Reagan winning his reelection. Um, and not close to, to Reagan's margin, but, but just absolutely kicked John McCain's butt. And, and this is actually where Nate Silver came to power because Nate said, look, or 538 said it's going to be a big win for Obama and everyone else thought it was going to be close. Anyway, so Obama wins by a lot. And 
and Senate Republicans are worried. He also had he also had Congress and Senate at the time. Uh, he only held it for two years, but suddenly you had Democrats holding power in both branches of government um, in a way that they did not have to get Republicans on board, right? In order to to get things done, and Republicans in reaction looked for ways to try to slow the Obama agenda down, whether whether at, in political cynicism or genuine fear of what the Obama administration could do, they made it their number one priority to stop him. And does this sound do, does that sound a little bit overblown? Well, let's let's go. Let's go to the horse's mouth. So Mitch McConnell, quote, the single most important thing we want to achieve for President Obama is for President Obama to be a one term president. Um, John Boehner, remember him on Obama's agenda, quote, we're going to do everything, and I mean everything we can do to kill it, stop it, slow it down, whatever we can. Um, and of course, Senate Republicans really held to their promise. And this is very, very different from how congressional Republicans worked with a Democratic president. Uh, the last time there was a Democratic president, it was Newt Gingrich uh, and Bill Clinton had a famously good relationship and worked together to get things done. Similarly, Reagan and Tip O'Neill worked together to get things done, to make sure that the presidency and Congress were in sync, that compromises were being made and that bills were being passed that everyone was at least sufficiently happy with. 2008 was the first time we really saw um, writ large a uh, Congress that by 2010 was dominated by one party. Um, Congress became Republican in 2010, uh, doing everything it could to oppose to oppose the or at least the, the first time in, in since I've been alive, uh, doing everything it can to oppose the the president's platform. And uh, things start to look a little bit more like the populares and the optimates. Yeah, uh, or or at least uncomfortably like the optimists and the populares. Right. Now, fast forward to 2016, a lot more people seriously questioned the legitimacy of the outcome of the election. Um, and we're hearing this again in 2020. Like today, and we're recording on December 23rd, people are still unsure uh, what Trump will do between now and Inauguration Day and how the Republican Party will respond. On January 6th, um, some people, you know, think that congressional Republicans are going to try to challenge the results of the electrical call up uh, electrical. Jeez, electoral <laughs> college. Oy, gavolt. Uh, and, <laughs> and it's, you know, a lot of people are seeing that as one of their last chances to overturn the election. And I think the severity of that certainly seems new. But it's not brand new in recent history, is it, Eric? No, it turns out that there were a handful of Democratic members of the House of Representatives, um, so elected representatives, who attempted to on that January 6th meeting where they accepted, where, where Congress has to accept the results of the election. I don't know if it was January 6th that time, but, but there's this step where Congress has to accept the results of each state's electors from the Electoral College, right? It's sort of the, the last thumbs up stamp from Congress that, okay, we've got a new president. And in 2016, there were congressional Democrats that attempted to get Senate Democrats, because you have to get both Congress and Senate, um, 
to to challenge uh, some 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 of the results, but to actually challenge those results and say, we don't know if we're going to accept this um, and try to bring it to a vote to see if those results can be overturned. So this actually happened four years ago. Now, we most people probably don't know that. Um, you know, I think if you're right, if you're more right wing, you'll say it's because, well, the media is very, you know, is is very sympathetic to the Democrats and hates Trump. So they actually like this idea. It may have also just because been because it was such a long shot. And, you know, Clinton wasn't Clinton wasn't supporting it. and Pelosi wasn't supporting it. You didn't have you didn't have enough support from the party for it to go anywhere. But it did happen. And and at that meeting, these folks like not only did they plan it, but they tried to make it happen. They tried to to challenge uh, the results and keep. So you had you had elected representatives trying to prevent the duly elected president of the United States from taking office because they didn't like him. And again, the severity of this incident in 2016 was s- smaller, at least in my opinion, than 2020. But you had a lot of Democrats at the time cheering for faithless electors to give their votes to Clinton rather than Trump. Opinion articles were written about this, and we'll have uh, links to this in our show notes, reconsidermedia.com. But like uh, the Huffington Post, a very mainstream uh, media outlet, ran an opinion article essentially advocating for this action. So uh, you had people, fewer people, uh, trying to essentially undermine the election, but in ways that were a little less aggressive than in 2020 or a lot less aggressive. Yeah. Uh, Another example in 2018 that happened on uh, a local uh, election scale was with uh, Stacey Abrams. In 2018, in the Georgia gubernatorial elections, Abrams never conceded. She said, quote, I acknowledge that former Secretary of State Brian Kemp will be certified as the victor in the 2018 gubernatorial election. However, she then declared that this was, quote, not a speech of concession. So Abrams accused Kemp, the Secretary of State at the time, of suppressing the vote by doing things such as purging voter registration polls. Kemp pointed to policies where he made it easier to register, such as like with online registrations. Um, And you can get into all the details of it. But the fact is, this has happened recently. And it was the other party doing it, but it was a different scale. And it is the tit-for-tat escalation. I'm going to keep drilling this point throughout the podcast. That's what we're trying to demonstrate here. It's not that one party is more culpable or the other, but it's that this pattern is very unsettling. Right. And we see this in... We see this in civil wars or ethnic conflicts or between the Israelis and Palestinians where people go, yeah, but they did it first, right? And you can say, well, that's not fair. That's not reasonable. But people are going to do this. This is human nature, right? And so imagine you're a Republican who is really ticked off right now and, and you're, talking, you know, you're talking to a Democrat and the Democrat says, it's outrageous that Republicans are still trying to overturn the election. And- the Republican will say, well, were you were you outraged when Huffington Post was talking about faithless electors, like advocating for faithless electors to overturn the results of the 2016 election? Were you outraged when congressional Democrats attempted to block the results of the electoral college vote from certain states to try to overturn the results of the election? Were you outraged when Stacey Abrams refused to concede? She still never technically conceded, right? And 
now maybe the Democrat could say, yeah, but those are so much smaller. And, and now it's now it's gotten out of control right now. It's now it's a big deal. It's a problem. Right. It's it's it's, it's becoming a crisis for our very democracy. And you'd be right to say we're in a crisis for our very democracy, but it really makes your moral position a lot less sturdy, doesn't it? And so perhaps it's time for another quote from Mike Duncan, quote, reflecting on the recurrent civil wars, of the late Republic, Sallust said, quote, it is this spirit which has commonly ruined great nations when one party desires to triumph over another by any and every means and to avenge itself on the vanquished with excessive cruelty. This next and quote, is that from 1984 or is that now, also from Mike Duncan? It, it is Duncan. He says, quote, but this was an age when a lie was not a lie. If a man had the audacity to keep asserting the lie was true. Sound familiar? And so now we are in 2020, a major escalation. But again, we're going to see nothing fundamentally new in which Trump, a man who who is a who's famously aggressive and consistent about lying when convenient for him, you know, declared long before the election that there would be mass fraud uh, and that if if he that he couldn't lose, the only way he could lose would be by mass fraud. And then he got trounced. Uh, and then he said, there's mass fraud. And people said, hey, where's the evidence? He said, there's there's lots of evidence, so much evidence, just piles, absolute piles of evidence. And, you know, and and of course, in the court, that didn't work because they said, OK, we actually need to see the evidence. You can't just say there's evidence. But in the court of public opinion, right, when. Um, when someone who is very popular, or at least with a with some people very popular, is very insistent that there's all this evidence that of of you know, uh, you know he and his allies, you know like Rudy Giuliani, are very insistent that there's lots of evidence of fraud, um, and that uh, it just so happened all that fraud was in the states that he lost this time that he won last time. Coincidentally, um, yeah, incidentally, and. Uh, there was definitely no fraud in the states that he won, right? But he said it loud and repeatedly enough that, um, you know, Xander, your point about 1984, uh, one of the yeah. reasons Orwell wrote about that was because it worked really well in fascist states um, where Orwell was watching this all unfold in the 1930s and 40s, that if you repeat a lie enough, people start to believe it. Um, and here we are. But, and and the trick is, uh, and th- th- this is an example of sort of how most myorum today is being pushed because when uh, the Trump legal team brought these cases to court, they they essentially didn't present any compelling evidence to any judge. I th- they lost sixty five of sixty seven of their cases, and the two cases were like very minor victories about like who could stand how many feet away from a table in some right. counting facility. So minor, and this is unsurprising because all claims of mass voter fraud in the past have at best been naive misrepresentations of somewhat infrequent circumstance and worse, just outright lies. And we've done in several in-depth investigations at Reconsider on voter fraud in prior U.S. elections. And uh, you can find the link to this in our show notes, again, reconsiderMedia.com. And it's, there, there is a lot of information to unpack here, and we have a video about it up on YouTube. But mm. the, the short of it is, Essentially, that many mass media organizations were citing uh, this one particularly uh, less than reputable organization for their figures about voter fraud. Um, and then, if you actually went and pulled up the primary source report, 
it becomes apparent very quickly. Uh, and you'll see uh, what we mean by not reputable if you watch our video on, on this organization, that it's not a very reputable source. Um, the problem is most people don't pull up primary sources, right? Right. Um, if you can, always spend five minutes to pull up whatever source uh, a, new, a news outlet is citing. So because Trump is so, you know, it. Oh, gosh, we have this great quote somewhere that I have lost. Um, ah, here we go. Quote. Saturninus, on the other hand, was the first to show the demagogues of the future generations just how far cynically manipulated mob violence could push a man's career forward. So we have a man, Donald Trump, who lost the election, who understands that he has a group of very, very loyal followers. Um, it's not the majority, but it's a large minority. And, um, and he's using this as well as he can in order to try to stay in office. Um, and so the fact that he's lost these, these lawsuits and the fact that they're being thrown out by judges that he nominated doesn't really matter. It's because, uh, it's because he's, he's a particularly compelling con man and, and, is, and is putting up the theater necessary to convince people that he really believes there was a lot of fraud. And it turns out, uh, it's interesting, Pat Robertson recently came out, the televangelist recently came out and said that he thinks Trump actually believes there was a lot of fraud and that Trump actually believes that he can still win. That's, that's, yeah, that's Pat Robertson's position. But um, so whether Trump believes this or not is, is unclear, and that's a little weird. But, um, but what it's resulted in, or, or some of the ways that he's tried to keep this going, is he's attacking the people who ran the election, even Republicans, for betraying him. Because, of course, well, you're a Republican, I'm a Republican, you should want me to win, so do the thing that you need to do to make me win. And folks like the Secretary of State of Georgia said, no, nah, I'm going to do the thing that means we have a fair election because I believe in this country. I believe in the legitimacy of the system. And the fact that he's attacking these people also kind of kind of bolsters this is part of him bolstering this claim that there are all these people who um, who betrayed the election itself to to try to keep him from being reelected. Yeah. And if you look at some of these actions from the perspective of, well, there's two ways that I think are fairly illuminating. Either imagining that um, the events going on in America were happening in a foreign country that you didn't know a lot about, maybe a former Soviet republic like mm. uh, Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan or something like that. Um, and then imagine an alternate universe in which uh, the tribe that you don't affiliate yourself with in the U.S. is using the same exact tactics to overturn the results of an election. How would you respond in that circumstance? Because again, the point of this episode is that when you set these new precedents by pushing the limits, it's going to come back to haunt you in ways that you didn't anticipate. And if you interview people from either party, they will say that they feel like their ongoing resistance, um, be it the, re the Republicans during the Obama administration or the Democrats now, uh, this is not the first time it happened. The Democrats, they tried to undermine Trump in every conceivable way. So the way that the Republicans did it with Obama is not uh, unique. Uh, but the Democrats would say, ah, well, you did that first. So now it's, it's fair game. Uh, and, and both sides feel free to do it again. Right. Yeah. And, and the thing is, you always feel like your side is justified, right? A Republican is going to feel like it was justified to try to oppose Obama at every turn because, you know, whatever. And Democrats 
have largely felt like it is entirely justified and necessary to try to oppose Trump at every turn, right? Even though he was the duly elected president. And what is it going to mean for the Biden administration, right? What are the Republicans going to do? Well, we already know the answer, right? Now, whose fault is it? It doesn't matter. Not at this point. Um, Nat, Nat Green, who those of you who have read Wedged uh, know and love, um, but he's shy, so he doesn't love to podcast. Uh, when we were talking to him about this, because we, we get his input on a lot of these, just kind of low key, he said, we've reached a state of endless total war. People are just going to do what they can get away with in order to keep power and keep their enemy from getting power. And I, I wrote as sort of a comment to, the, to this quote that Nat had um, that right now, of course, a state of endless total war, it's largely a metaphorical war or a political war. But the risk is that we could again find ourselves at the point where actual violent conflict with our neighbors is uh, maybe not likely, but uh, more probable than we should ever want to approach. There are other ways that most Myram is starting to break down, right? So the first one is elections are becoming delegitimized. It's more about just making sure you win. Uh, and if you don't, making sure that the other president can't, you know, can't do anything with their the nuclear option is probably something that folks have heard heard about. It was used in 2017 by Mitch McConnell and the Republicans to force through Gorsuch, um, uh, the you know, to to replace. Oh, gosh, I forget who Kennedy. Um, yes, Kennedy. Uh, no, sorry, it was before that because Kennedy quit. During the Trump administration, it was whoever it was whoever. Oh, uh, Scalia. Uh, yeah, Scalia died during the late during the Obama administration. Um, and um, yeah, and the Republicans said, you know, we're going to we're going to keep, you know, keep you Obama from appointing a judge. Um, and we're just not even going to hear it. Right. So we're going to use the power of the Senate to to deny even hearing uh, any any of your nominations. And then we're going to appoint our guy. But the Democrats said, OK, we're going to filibuster this because we think this is foul play. We think you've broken most of my arm. We're not going to let you get away with it. And so Mitch McConnell used the nuclear option, which is this like weird. I don't even want to talk about exactly how it works, but it's this weird procedural thing you can do to force cloture with 50 votes rather than 60. So here's the context you need to know. No, our current Senate rules say that. If there's a debate, you can force the debate to end with 60 votes. This is called cloture, closing the debate. And this is, this is why you hear about filibuster-proof majorities. If you have 60 people who all agree something should happen, they can just say, all right, cloture, now we have to vote. That's the rules. Um, filibusters are how if, say, 41 or 42 senators are all like, this is a terrible idea. We don't want to use it. It's an option that they have, a power move they can play to stop a vote from happening. Because uh, voting on a thing, like voting on a law or an appointment, actually only requires 50 votes, uh, but getting cloture and getting to the vote normally requires 60. Through this procedural twist, McConnell said 50 votes for cloture, 50 votes to approve Gorsuch. Boom, done. And um, a lot of people were really upset by this. But guess what? Wasn't the first time it happened. The first time. It was ever used was, in fact, 2013 by Harry Reid, who's the uh, who those of you who don't remember Harry Reid, 
uh, he was the Mitch McConnell when the Democrats were in charge. So he was he was the Senate Majority Leader, and Harry Reid used the nuclear option the first time um, to eliminate the sixty vote cloture rule in order to push through some executive branch nominations and in particular federal judicial appointments to the circuit court that Obama wanted that the Republicans were opposing. Yeah. And if this idea of cloture seems like some convoluted legal parlor trick, it's because it is. It's (laughs) just because something is technically allowed doesn't mean that that provision was intended to be used regularly all the time. Uh, because things like that end up changing the balance of the institutions. And you can argue like, well, well, what is that balance really supposed to mean? And we can have a reasonable conversation. But I, I don't think that obscure legal tricks should determine those dynamics. That right. doesn't and seem most, to make sense. And most people don't think you should use obscure legal tricks because obscure legal tricks are raw power. Most myorum says don't use obscure legal tricks, right? Go by the intent. What was the intent? What are we supposed to be doing? Right? What is the custom? Go by that. That's most my arm. Using the nuclear option breaks most my arm. Why is it called a nuclear option? Because there's no going back. Right? Once you launch the nukes, it's now nuclear war. That's why people called it the nuclear option when when people kind of figured out in the 1970s that you can do this. Like someone, someone sorted out and said, man, this is a nuclear option. Only use this if you're willing to go to proverbial nuclear war. Harry Reid used it in 2013. Uh, Mitch McConnell used it in 2017. And people are talking about now using it more regularly because the Rubicon on that particular piece of most my arm has been crossed. And the narrative that I've heard justifying that position from people who lean left is, well, the Republicans played dirty and we haven't, and now it's time to play their game back at them. It's exactly what we've been talking about. This escalation of tactics, you set a new precedent and it becomes the new norm. And that's what's dangerous about this cycle. We don't necessarily have answers, but the idea is that we want to be having these conversations um, because we think they're they're important to have. Now, there are other dynamics going on now. Two, um, for example, the delegitimization and in many cases dehumanization of political opponents, uh, all the tribalism that we all talk about, and the the disillusionment and antipathy that, that antipathy that many people feel. Now, a lot of these dynamics are, in a way, old hat. We've been talking about this at Reconsider um, since Eric, you and Nat wrote Wedge in 2014. And you and I have been talking about it on the podcast since 2015. Now, we, we won't repeat at, at length the dynamics that are driving this tribalism and dehumanization, but this is also a big part of the Roman story. There was a mutual dehumanization between the populares and the optimates, and this led them to be willing to use violence against each other and eventually to go to war twice. The enemy within had become more bitter than the enemy without. And this almost destroyed Rome for good. And, you know, this, this mutual antipathy that we see in the United States is also something where, where you hear otherwise normal people advocating for violence against their fellow Americans for what they believe. Right. And so I remember reading, uh, I remember being sent an article 
Um, that was, you know, own the libs has now become kill the libs and oh. and the Republicans are are escalating or the right wing is is escalating in its its violent rhetoric. And this is very true. And it's probably the most violent that we've seen rhetoric about political violence for a while. But guess what? 2016 punching Nazis was cool. And I know a lot of Democrats who sorry, talking about punching Nazis was cool because it was mostly just a violent fantasy that most that frustrated left wingers had. But I know people who defend that language, right, where we're going to we're going to define who's a Nazi and then we're going to go punch them until they stop talking. We are going to use political violence against these people in order to shut them up. Right. We did a post about why this is so dangerous. And now the Republicans are not or now. Sorry, not the Republicans. Some right wingers are saying, well, we're going to use violence to put down these crazy radical leftists who want to turn us into Venezuela or whatever. And you go. And the leftists go, or the people on the left go, like, we don't, what, we don't want to turn it into Venezuela. What are you talking about? And they go, well, we're not Nazis, so f you, bam, right? Um, but you started it by punching Nazis. Now, of course, the Nazi punchers can probably look back on something and say, well, no, this has been there was a precedent set long before punching Nazis, right? We didn't just make up political violence whole cloth. But the point is, the precedent has been set. The highway is open, right? And one day you're advocating using political violence and, and you're se- and you can justify it to yourself and your friends why it's OK. But then someone else is advocating for political violence. And and now it starts to look really scary when the other side's doing it. And yes, it's an escalation because they're talking about using guns, not fists. Right. And they have been used. Right. We're starting to see it already. It, and it's a hard gene to put back in the bottle. So in Charlottesville, a man used a car to run over two protesters. In Kenosha, a kid showed up with a gun and he shot and killed two people. In Oregon, um, an Antifa, uh, some, someone with like a bunch of Antifa logos, all of them, shot and killed a Trump supporter who was just sitting there protesting, right? And the fact that it hasn't gotten worse, frankly, surprises me. The fact that it hasn't spiraled into more like mob violence is surprising. Yeah, because once people start to be killed, that begins a cycle of retribution that has so much momentum that it's hard to stop. It doesn't matter what someone's policies are. If they've killed your brother, you want revenge. And that's the problem with political violence is it takes all these general ideas about how we should live together and makes, and, and, and makes it impact you in a very direct way. I was saying this uh, earlier tonight to my girlfriend that when I think about the era of the pandemic and I think about trends in history more generally, it feels like today other people's actions have a far greater impact on my, mm. my, myself directly than they have recently. And, I th- and you think back and you think of prior examples and it seems like we pass through periods where that's the case, where what other people do have a greater or lesser impact on either your physical well-being or, you know, what have you. And the challenge today is not only is this, does this trend exist, but at the same time, we have this, this notion of fake news, which is just we label everything that we don't like or, or agree with as fake news, and it makes it easy to, to write it off. And I'm not saying that bad reporting doesn't exist. We've talked about this a lot. A couple of years ago, we did a write-up about how people were reporting North Korea and Kim Jong-un's, you know, oh, this is a statement of war. And I had people texting me. I said, oh my God, are we going to nuclear war with North Korea? When I pulled up the actual quote, 
it, it, it seemed pretty serious until you realize that Kim Jong-un and his father, Kim Jong-il, had said similar things like 15 times beforehand in the last 20 years. Um, and this is critical context. So there's a lot of disinformation out there, and we're on the verge of political violence. Now, personally, and maybe this is varying into an opinion, but I think a lot of this problem would be solved. A lot of this, this, this issue of fake news and accountability, if people took the time to look up primary resources rather than just like taking someone's word for it. Now, I, I know this isn't realistic. I don't think this is ever going to happen. <laughs> but <laughs> because I, I know that most people won't do this, but I do think that listeners to this podcast are far, far, far more likely to go do that sort of research than the average American. And I also believe, um, well, not I believe we've done, we've chatted with our um, listeners and we did a survey a while back. Our folks in the considerate communities are often thought leaders in their own communities and their own tribe. So you consider it's taking the time to do this primary source research can potentially help combat a lot of this disinformation, I think. Yeah, and it's a tall order, right? And maybe this is where we get to our reconsider moment. How do we walk back, right? Because how do stories like this one tend to end? We talked about Rome and the death of the Republic. Um, we talked about Germany in previous episodes, right? You get literally Hitler. Right. And that doesn't mean we we're going to have literally Hitler, but they got literally Hitler as the Republic fell apart, um, as it was torn apart by by right wing and left wing mobs running around fighting in the streets. Right. Each thinking that they can punch the other one into silence and then beat the other one into silence with clubs and then shoot the other one into silence. Then you got Hitler. You know, France, I, I know you somewhat object to this this example, but I think, you know, I think if we look deeply into the French Republic. The French Republic had a lot of potential, right? 1793, everything was looking great. They, they, they just said, you know what? Feudalism, bad. Let's, let's get rid of feudalism. And then like the monarchy, bad. Let's get rid of monarchy. But they were chopping people's heads off, right? It started to spiral out of control. Now, it happened very, very quickly. Um, and so, so you didn't have this established, part of it is you didn't have this established most my arm. Right. These established customs. Right. Um, but then Napoleon showed up and he said and, and people when things start to spiral out of control, what happens is people look to someone very powerful to save them and just put a lid on it. And then, boom, dictatorship. And again, the reference to Mos Maiorum in ancient Rome, you actually had the literal office of dictator. But the traditions and norms were it was only called rarely. And when it was, there were six month periods that could be extended by the Senate. and almost all of the dictators stepped down either at the end of their term or when the emergency ended. And the famous example is Cincinnatus. Cincinnatus, um, yeah. Cincinnatus, he went and he, he, he won this war. And then like 16 days later, he's like, peace, going back to my farm. Cincinnati's named after him. Well, Cincinnati is named after George Washington, whose nickname was Cincinnatus because he did the same thing. Uh, yeah, I didn't realize that. Thank you. Yeah. Ah, yeah. At first, yeah. he, he voluntarily didn't... stepped down and went back to his farm after the nation didn't need him anymore. He is our Cincinnatus. And that tradition was followed all the way up until FDR. And then people right. were like, ooh, four terms. Maybe we should make this. We should write this tradition down um, yeah. because people might push it. Now, um, where do we go from here? Oh, well, you... You were you were talking you were talking about history because what's I think when you're talking about the dictator role, what's so interesting is Caesar gets appointed to be dictator, to try to put a lid on everything, right? So we're using a, a we're using a form of power that already exists, but then what happens? An emergency uh, form of emergency power. 
Yes. Yes. And then, um, C- but okay. Caesar becomes dictator for life. Yeah, right. Um, that Those last two words matter a fair amount. But it was just one step away from something that already existed, right? And it was because, and, and people allowed it because they were looking for someone to save them from themselves, right? People realize we're the villains now. We're the bad guys. It's our own. Well, they didn't realize. Sorry. They were so passionate. They were like, oh, it's the other half, right? That are all the bad guys. Um, and, uh, and we're afraid of them. And, and this has gotten out of hand. Save us, right? And Caesar, he crossed the Rubicon. He broke the law. He brought an army into Rome for the first time, right? And he should have been thrown out like a tyrant, but he was greeted in the streets with cheers because people were so sick of it. So sick of the war, so sick of the death and the fear. Where do we go from here? Like I mentioned earlier in the episode, I have a lot of friends who um, lean left and are anxious to escalate and and play the same game that they feel the Republicans have been playing for the last couple of years and and all that. Um, so I mean, what do you do? Can you do you try to disarm unilaterally? And I I know lots of people who are opposed to that for maybe obvious reasons. Do you find a way to disarm bilaterally and adhere to uh, older traditions that somehow we can all find common ground to agree on? Going back to the way it was, putting the genie back in that bottle. Because when republics fall, and I'm going to generalize that a little bit and say when countries fall, um, but we've been using the examples of republics because we're a republic and we want to find the historical comparisons. Mm. When republics fall, they get bloody. Things get bloody. Sometimes just for that country, sometimes for that country and its neighbors. But the, in the case of social revolution, just because we were talking about um, France and um, I, I guess the example of Rome is a social revolution too, where the hierarchies in society, the way they relate to each other, change fundamentally. So it's not just like a new regime comes in managing the existing levers of political power. Like there's a change in identity in the country. And, you know, when that happens, not only does it get extremely bloody, but the people who are out there advocating for the common man more often than not end up encouraging the type of violence that that cripples or kills the very type of person that they claim to be fighting for. So violence is not good. We need to all think about ways we can come to work with each other once again. And I, I, you know, in a way that's been our shtick for several years. And Eric, I don't know about you, but I have friends saying like, that's great and all, but I don't think that's realistic anymore. And like, I think that's a fairy tale. And uh, I don't think that that's a a reasonable trope at this point. What do you think? It's certainly not popular, but I think the, the problem with saying finding some way to get along with each other isn't going to work. Like if you say that, what you're doing is you're committing to not getting along, right? You're making a commitment. And based on any reasonable read of history, you're making a commitment to encouraging violence, to encouraging the unraveling of the Republic. Those are your options, kid, right? You either go one way or you go the other. Um, now, you can sit on the fence and keep your mouth shut, but if you're going to be involved, you I mean, look, I hate to say you're part of the solution, you're part of the problem, but you're either on the side of, look, guys, we've got to find a way to make this work and get along, 
or you're on the side of we're not going to get along. We're going to keep escalating. We're going to keep using power. And history has shown us over and over how that ends. So are you committed to the death of the Republic or not? It's that simple. And look, there's good news. History has also shown us in our own nation that we have been able to step back from the brink. And even when we've crossed the brink and gone to war with each other, we've managed to get back together. And people will say, oh, well, after the you know, reconstruction was terrible and, and after it got knitted together, all these problems. Yeah, there were problems. There's always going to be problems. There's always going to be problems. And but we managed to get back together. Right. And what did getting back together mean? It meant that the United States was able to become the global superpower. And, and look, it's actually not a fun job, but it was very important in the 20th century. Right. To to save East Asia and help save Europe and keep the Nazis from taking over and then keep the Soviets from taking over. Right. And and there are all these benefits that the world has reaped for the United States being able to get itself back together and and have a society that gets along. And and we you know, we became the richest country in the world. And and there have been you know, there have been various times where where like the middle class was very powerful and like things seem to be actually going really well. Right. The outcome that came from figuring out how to get back together and get along and limp by, even though we disagree on so much. The outcome was really good. And so we've done it before. We could do it again. Right. And we have a president who is at least or we have a president elect who is at least signaling that his plan is to try to reestablish norms. Right. Kind of try to try to put tape over the tears in the system and, you know, try to run the country like the like the presidents of the past where that we took for granted right the way that they ran the country with integrity and with with you know an eye to the nation rather than themselves you know he's going to give it a shot and so what's my point my point is it's just such a lazy i think you know so this is a reconsider moment so i get to have a perspective here i think it's just lazy to say well you know getting along it's all kumbaya crap and uh, it's not going to work anyway. It's like, all right, so what are you committed to? So times are tough. Hang in there. Uh, it seems at least that the end of the pandemic is in sight. And since we're publishing this episode maybe before Christmas and we made an earnest appeal before Thanksgiving to stay home, stay home, stay home, please, for Christmas, stay home, stay home, stay home, do the right thing. Um, we're not in the first wave anymore. We don't have justifiable uh naiveness when it comes to this virus and how it works, how our movements correlate with new daily case counts and deaths. We've seen it twice. We've lived through it twice. We, there is no excuse for acting unethically this holiday season. Do the right thing. Stay home. And I'll see you guys on the other side. Uh, we'll be back, as always, in a couple of weeks with um, more Reconsider episodes. In the meantime, check us out on ReconsiderMedia.com or you know, whatever, send us an email. Until then, um, this is Xander signing off. Um, oh, I forgot the tagline. You want to do the tagline? <laughs> yeah, I'm doing it. One favor I'd like to ask before we go, share this episode with a friend who's talking about escalating, right? They need this historical perspective. So send them to this episode, right? You don't have to fight this fight alone. This is why we're making this episode. This is for people like you who have your heads, you know, who, who are cool headed, who want to save the Republic 
and have friends who are starting to lose their gourd, send them this episode. And as always, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. This is Eric, signing off. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.